Hello, and thank you very much for listening to this episode of the Billy Newman Photo Podcast. Today, I wanted to talk to you about trying to find a location for a photo shoot. Now, recently, I've been trying to go out into some of the lake areas around the Cascades as you're kind of getting into the upper Cascades to try and find a location to do a photo shoot with a vehicle, kind of a larger vehicle. And so I've tried to sort that out. Um, and it's kind of an interesting project. It's cool. And it's it's tough, though, because you think, well, the, you know, it's a beautiful area up there. You know, there are lots of roads and stuff. It's really nice. So, of course, it'll be easy. We'll just go out there and take a photo. But it's interesting, it's a little more complicated than that in some sense, because you have to kind of lay out a way to get there. And, and really, in a lot of circumstances, when you're taking uh, photos as a tourist or photos as a traveler or an explorer, using elements that just sort of occur happenstantially in the scene, you're waiting for a moment of serendipity to happen where, you know, some, some kind of element of light, of natural light, and then of, uh, you know, character or presence of a person in the frame, and then some kind of element of color or whatever it is that you're trying to, to lay out in the, in the photograph. Uh, you apply that vision that you have of it with your camera to the scene, and then you're able to make a photograph out of it. And that's really cool stuff. But when you're trying to set up a pre-planned photo shoot with a list of objectives, it's kind of complicated to just do that happenstantially, you know, kind of walk around and roam about some road and try and get photographs of something fantastic. It's a little bit, I guess, I found more complicated than that. You know, yeah, you're like, duh, Billy, of course. Uh, so <laughs> with that, I've been trying to go out in advance of a photo shoot coming up to try and plan some of the locations that I can get to to try and get the photographs that I'm looking for. You know, essentially just like location scouting, I suppose. But I know where the location is, but just none of them quite work right. It's like, you know, an area, it's a tight road. It's like, dude, you're just want to take it on a road was it or how do, how do you set it up how do you fake or what is it that you what is an element that you fake in a sense that makes it actually more real it sounds weird to say it that way but like how is it you know if you just kind of pull into a campsite well maybe that's a little too compact to really shoot the scene of camping so maybe if you went out to a wider area that wasn't really specifically listed as that, you would have a more interesting frame of reference visually to compile those elements. So I guess there's a few things like that that, uh, that you're trying to throw in there. So recently I was trying to go out to try and find a location to get something for uh, for a photo shoot. It was kind of interesting. It was fun trying to figure out. But uh, it just kind of brings up uh, yeah that element of like, how do you do that? How do you do production of stuff or how do you do like pre-production of a scene that you're going to try and get a photograph of i don't know if anybody else out there has any experience but if you do shoot me a message i'm on instagram at billy newman and on the internet at billynewmanphoto.com you can see more of my work at billynewmanphoto.com you can check out some of my photo books on amazon I think you can look up uh, Billy Newman under the authors section there and see uh, some of the photo books on film, on the desert, on surrealism, on camping. Some cool stuff over there. This last week, I made a trip out to Central Oregon, and it was still really nice. You know, we had a little bit of rain, I think, out there last Thursday, Friday, and then Saturday, Sunday, we it just it just brightened up a ton. It was super crisp out, super bright, really cold though. Uh, I think my friend Dave had just gone out uh, to Eastern Oregon, I think out towards Smith Rock and he said it was super cold out there too. But yeah, this trip, uh, we did like an overnight trip out there. And I think today I just posted a photograph of, uh, of something I thought was really cool. It's one of the archeological remains that are out in Eastern Oregon. And, and there's a whole interesting history about stuff in Eastern Oregon. Um, but the photo that I posted to Instagram and to, you know, to Facebook and all the other places today is, is a photograph of this rock teepee ring 
that's still in very good condition. It's out in Eastern Oregon in this area, uh, in between, uh, sort of near like where a dry lake bed, or once just a lake would have been. Now what we see in our modern time is just a dry lake bed. But the cool thing is, is as we kind of look around, you can see the remnants of an old Indian camp that was really quite established in that area. I think it's it's just amazing to get to go see. And you'll find other artifacts uh, from Indian populations out in Eastern Oregon once you start looking around, like you'll start noticing um, obsidian chips that are on the ground, or you'll start noticing um, really in like some places, you, through a lot of Oregon, through a lot of the, the less developed, uh, less forested areas of Eastern Oregon, there's a, there's a lot less erosion that's taken place, natural erosion that's taken place over the last few hundred years. Like over here on the west side of the coast with all the, the deciduous plant um, matter that comes up, there's a lot of turnover that seems to happen. Like um, a lot of the vegetation is going to end up hiding or overgrowing some of the older um, encampments or establishments that were made. I mean, right now I'm in the Camas Valley. I'm in the Willamette Valley where the uh, Kalapuya Indians were. I'm sure out here in front of me in this big field out toward the Willamette River, there's tons of Indian artifacts, tons of old Indian camps, but none of that's really visible because of all the deciduous organic material that's been developed over here over the many hundreds of years since it's been that there was an Indian population in the area. Now, what's interesting about Eastern Oregon is that because it's way more remote, there's very few people out there. There's very few people to disturb a lot of things. And really, sagebrush doesn't grow very fast. Uh, things don't really move around very fast out there. I was there, I think, maybe more than a decade ago, and it was really almost the same as it is now. Very little has changed out there. You know, there's No new houses, no new development, maybe a, maybe a fence around the thing. That might be it. Um, but it was really cool. So you get out to this area, you hike out to a spot, and you can really see all over the ground. It's just a ton of black obsidian chunks, these unworked pieces of black obsidian that were carried in by people and then dropped there at some point. And all these pieces were used, I think, in the, in the, in the camp to, to chip out arrowheads and to chip out other tools that they would use. But it's really cool. This teepee ring is really the, the only... Um, well, there's a few teepee rings, like uh, a few smattering of like of, of piles of rocks. This teepee ring was really the one that was uh, that was the most established. Still, it was most upright still. And you wonder, like, how far back did these go? Like, how far back did these uh, these stones that were laid into the ground go? But they would use it sort of like as a foundation for for the tent or the hut of the teepee that they they would have established there. And then they would you know work out of it. And they worked out of it on a bluff, and then they would look out over the the hill to the lake area and yeah i don't know they just had a whole system out there but it's really amazing when you really start to uh to come in and, and sort of understand the layout of the land and, and where people would sort of go and it's very interesting man surreal really to get out and like be in a spot like that or sit in a spot sit in the center of the teepee ring where you know there's people other men thousands of years ago that were doing work and trying to survive out in really what is now a very harsh environment. And back then was still probably quite harsh, <laughs> uh, at least in the hundreds of years ago. But man, if you start going back thousands of years, even a few hundred years ago, I guess 500 years ago, a lot of those dry lake areas out in Eastern Oregon really still had at least a marsh or at least a wetland or, uh, or something like that. I mean, like similar to Summer Lake now, you know, parts of the year it's dry, parts of the year it's, it's filled with water. Um, so it, it might be quite a bit more like that now, but I think in the past it was really, uh, it, was, it was just accepted that there was going to be some amount of water in, in the lake bed all year round instead of it being, you know, a dry lake bed. And I think it's, 
I think it's supported by the watershed of a few creeks that are in the area. And, and out in that area of Eastern Oregon, there's really, I don't think there's really that many, that many drainages that really go all the way out toward the coast. Um, so I think there's a few parts that are like landlocked watersheds where the water flows into an area and then, and then kind of pools up and makes a large lake there. And, um, well, I know like there's the Klamath Lake and then that runs out to the Klamath River. So that, that ends up getting out to the, to the ocean. But I don't know if like places like Goose Lake or, uh, or just like these inland lake areas, I think they're just fed by the body of water. And I don't really know if a lot of that would actually get back out into the water cycle to, to head back out toward the ocean and then, you know, come back up or something. So it's kind of interesting thinking about uh, just some of the, the old watershed stuff that used to be out there, how populations used to try and try and work around all that. You know, like you go out to a place like Fort Rocky and you read some of the signs and you look at uh, how back in the Pleistocene area, they, that whole region out there was part of, a, I think, what's called a Pluvian Lake. Uh, it's like a prehistoric Pleistocene era lake. Um, that really took up a huge amount of land out in central Oregon. Really what we think of now is just a large desert area covered with sagebrush with really very few land features was actually just all underwater. The, the land feature of Fort Rock that we visualize now, I think came about uh, geologically during the Pleistocene era, era before, before, the, uh, before the Ice Age and, and probably a, a while back before that. But during that time, it was underwater. It was under a lake bed. And so that's where you get that formation is it was underwater and then it kind of eroded around it, this aquifer and lava or aquifer and magma, I don't know, it met at a certain time and made this big ring, this big uh, this big Fort Rock style formation, and that's still what's out there now. But it's really amazing when you get out there and you go see it, and then you kind of start to reckon with the perspective that this all was once underwater. This was like an inland sea. And then after the Ice Age, or before the Ice Age, there's some evidence of kind of, a, well, I don't know. Who knows? But uh, there's evidence to show that uh, the Clovis people, the Clovis tribes, which I think were, were the ones that at least in modern archaeology have been identified as the group that was first to come over the land bridge, first to come into the northwest and populate uh, parts of the west coast and into the south and onward and such. But I guess these Clovis people had, a, had like a specific type of, of way of, of building their tools or stone tools that they would use. And that's a, a bit of a way that you can track some things is if you do find an archaeological artifact you can kind of identify by the technique used to build the stone tool like there's uh, there's different measures i think one of the oldest ones that's looked for is fluting um and that was a, a technique used by the clovis people where they would they would sort of make an an arrowhead or a spear point really spear points i don't know if they had they had flying bows and arrows at that time that far back but they they build these spear points and they would flute the end the bottom of it so like if you were to imagine um it would be kind of this concaved uh, slope that was that was sort of dremeled out of the bottom base of the rock, so that you could you could kind of fit that down in the center of a of a stick, really, and then and then wind that up. So you kind of make both ends uh, kind of taper off to a point, and then you would jam one end into the stick, and then wrap it, and then I don't know, you know, put sap on it or or, or you know whatever you could do to to, to fasten it down. Um, but I guess that was one of the techniques that was used early on, and that's one of the the things that they look for when they're trying to find really old populations in Oregon. Sometimes it's fluting. That doesn't always mean that it's really old, though, I suppose. But I guess there was like handfuls of uh, 
of different technical or technological generations of, of stone tool building out there. And you can kind of tell a little bit, but it's very fascinating stuff. And man, was it not amazing to get out there and to really recognize that, you know, I was around uh, a natural human man-made, well, a semi-natural, but man-made artifact of, uh, of a home or of an establishment that's as old, I don't know how old it is. Maybe it's as old as early Rome, late Rome. Who would know how old it is in comparison to Europe? I'm not really sure. Maybe it goes back even further than that. It seems like there was population uh, in that area of Oregon for thousands of years. I think, was it the Paiute that was out there? Could be different, but I know the Paiute, the Paiute were south of that area. The Paiute were in Lake County, I think like through Heart Mountain, Alvord, Nevada, the Malheur area, all of that was Paiute. So maybe this was still in the Paiute section, but I know that that really, you know, like what we've noticed in the last few hundred years, if you were to uh, to look at the changes of a map, even within the United States over the last, say, take 600 years, not even 7,000 years, take the last 600 years of the United States of America, and then look at all the different maps that would be the territorial ranges of those people who ended up being in power during that time. It's really interesting to see and to kind of take note to how something that seems permanent or seems to have the nature of permanence in it when you speak about it like the that was the range of the Paiute Indian well was it for 600 years or for that long did it move around did they have I don't know territorial engagements was there really that many of them were they there all the time I don't know any of that information so it's kind of interesting when you sort of think about it, but it could have been any number of large groups of people that probably would have no idea they were called the Paiute Indian. Um, but all really very interesting stuff. And man, was it so cool to get out there and uh, and see uh, see a real uh, a teepee ring? It's really fun. It's one of the the cooler pieces of uh, archaeological artifacts that I've run into. I mean, you know, you see uh, petroglyphs, you see a lot of things, but really, you know, you were sitting in the home of someone that lived thousands of years ago. That lived out in the same place that, that I do now. You know, really fascinating stuff. But I had a blast going out there and, uh, and getting to check it out. Uh, and it was really, I don't know, I just, I love, I kind of love this stuff with the, with the story, with the background to it, or where you kind of get to attach something that you recognize with it, with, uh, with what you get to talk about or what you get to show with it. Uh, so I thought it was a really cool story. It was, it was really fun to get out there and go see it. I remembered it from years ago. I think I'd seen it about 10 or 11, 12 years ago. And uh, I think I had tried to go back to it, but I didn't really see how to or where it was. And I wasn't really sure. It's not something on the map. You can check out more information at BillyNewmanPhoto.com. You can go to BillyNewmanPhoto.com forward slash support if you want to help me out and participate in the value for value model that uh, we're running this podcast with. If uh, you receive some value out of some of the stuff that I was talking about. You're welcome to uh, help me out and send some value my way through the portal at billynewmanphoto.com forward slash support. You can also find more information there about uh, Patreon and the way that I use it. If you're interested or or feel more comfortable using Patreon, that's patreon.com forward slash billynewmanphoto. A couple of things I wanted to talk about were some Mac apps today. I've been uh, trying to sort of set up my uh, my MacBook to be, uh, um, I guess, configured with a few more utilities and a few more pieces of software that make it uh, a little more functional for me. Uh, so I wanted to try and talk about those a little bit today. But one of them was iStat Menus. It was this application that uh, I'd heard about 
maybe over a year ago. I'd, I'd been using it a lot when I was trying to render some 360 footage and, uh, and a lot more like video footage. I was just using my computer like the whole day to do that. Um, and so this program, iStat Menus, is really good for uh, adding in a bunch of information, like a bunch of system information to your computer right at the at the top of the, uh, what's that bar at the top? You know, with like the Apple menu and your time and your clock and stuff, right up there, like you get a bunch of uh, a bunch of information about like your disk space, your network uh, speeds, uploads and downloads, your CPU and GPU. It's pretty interesting. I like to get to check it out and kind of with it, you have a bunch of graphs that sort of indicate uh, when or how much how much you know of the system is going toward that task at that time so right now i'm doing an upload to amazon photos to try and get a, a backup of all my images up there and i'm looking at the network monitor and it's so it's showing me like a, a history of my network upload speeds over the last 24 hours and i see like there's a big dip before like 5 a.m while it was running overnight and then now it's back up like to maybe 3x what it was before so it's kind of interesting you got to monitor like how how your speeds are and that sort of thing. When I was rendering video out, it was cool because you could see like the, the temperature sen sensors inside of the computer. And in addition to that, you could see like the hard drive space that was left on each of your drives, including your externals. And you could see how fast the CPU and GPU were working. Um, so I've been using this app a lot for kind of a, the system process uh, monitoring stuff. It's cool. I've been uh, enjoying it. It's kind of fun to to get used to. In addition to that, another one that I'm checking out is probably one that a lot of people have heard of before, but I think it's called Magnet. Yeah, Magnet, I think, and it, it uh, sort of reproduces the functionality that you get. I think starting back in Windows 7, where if you pull a window to the edge of the screen, it'll sort of snap to the edge of that side of the screen, or it'll, or it'll snap to be a split pane window. It's kind of interesting how it works, but I like, I like how it works on Windows, and I have have been sort of frustrated in the past that uh, I don't have that kind of that utility in the Mac OS uh, system. So I, you know, the windows are sort of built to kind of float all over each other. And I did kind of like that part of, of windows or, you know, back in my experience of working in windows, which isn't a way I work with a computer. Now I have like seven windows up right now on the, on windows. I would really always go to, you know, a full screen application almost all the time. Uh, so it's kind of interesting how that, that workflow sort of changes over time. What else am I working on? Oh, Amazon Photos. That was another one that um, I guess I'm, I'm kind of going through right now. Sort of uh, lean into a, another side of it. But I've been using Amazon Photos for a while and the Amazon Drive system uh, to, to have some backups or, or not even really backups for the photos, backups of the photos, I suppose, because it's the DNGs and it is the JPEG images. I think you can put video up there also, but that takes up uh, paid storage space. So uh, for photos, you can put as many photos up on, on the cloud as you want with your Prime membership. And I think I put like probably almost a, 100 gigs of photos up there. So it's cool. You do have access to all of your images in that in that library of images that you have online. Like I can pull it up on my phone in an app and I can pull it up, you know, on the web or in a few other places. So it just gives me an accessibility to my images that I hadn't really had before uh, to every image in that way, at least. So that's kind of cool that, you know, I do see that I have access to all of those photographs. Bigger than that, I really need to go through and make uh, more functional collections of you know, smaller sections of that so that I have just a lot of the photos I would need to use set up in, in a high-quality system that are more accessible to me. That's still that's still a little piece that uh, that isn't really quite as tight as I would like it within 
my photo business, but I've been using Amazon Photos to make a backup of everything. It, almost everything's already there, but it kind of incremental area. You know, like as you go, you need to you know, get all the new stuff up there. So I'm trying to uh, put up a bunch of the stuff that I've had for the last couple months when uh, I haven't really been as able to put a sync back up to the Amazon Photos uh, cloud backup. The cool thing is though, is I'm, I'm trying to work with iCloud a little more in addition to that. And so I've been setting up the iCloud uh, I, well, I put it in Finder so I can access my iCloud data there in Finder from multiple computers and from my phone, which is cool. But on my phone and my files app, I was going in there and I put in, uh, since I have like the Amazon Drive application on my phone, I had my files application sort of show that I can go to my Amazon Photos files there from my phone. So without even going to the Amazon Photos application, just from my files app, I can go through and browse all of those photo folders on the cloud and then pull up and view those images. I thought that was kind of cool. Uh, or it was just interesting to see like, well, yeah, I can jump to each of or any data photos that I want back in time because they're all backed up now and, and more accessible. So, um, so I think it's pretty cool. It's a, it's a free service when you pay, uh, for a prime membership. So I, I guess the proper way to say it is, it is, uh, it is a premium service that is included with your prime membership, uh, which seems to be pretty valuable a lot of the time. I, I like that the Amazon cloud services and cloud storage services, which I'm trying to get a little more into, like I was mentioned, I think it's, I think it's 11 or you know, 12 bucks a year for 100 gigabytes of storage space on Amazon drive. Thanks a lot for checking out this episode of the Billy Newman photo podcast. Hope you guys check out some stuff on Billy Newman photo.com. A few new things up there, some stuff on the homepage, some good links to other other outbound sources, some, some links to books, some links to some podcasts, links to some blog posts. All pretty cool. But yeah, check it out at BillyNewmanAphoto.com. Thanks a lot for listening to this episode of the podcast. Talk to you next time.